J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins is at the beginning volunteered somewhat against his will to go with a company of dwarves across the known world to their ancient mountain home of Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. Maybe you've read the book or seen the movies. The book is quite quick to read. It's a children's book. The movies are quite long to watch. They uh, expanded on it much. The dwarves are seeking their long-lost home, and uh, with its vaulted caverns, it's got this rich store of treasure, and there is a singularly massive problem. There is a gigantic dragon named Smog who lives there, where the dwarves once lived. This dragon killed many, ran them out, burned the nearby town, and now greedily sleeps atop the hoard of gold and precious stones. So how are they going to get home? And once they get home, how are these dwarves going to get in where a dragon guards the entrance? Well, they have a special map that tells them where to go. And actually, they didn't know this, but that under certain moonlight tells them that there is a secret. After generations, a mystery is revealed that tells them that they must be at a door that's on the side of the mountain that was originally an air shaft. And uh, when they're there on sunset of Durin's day, which is a specific holiday for them, the setting sun will shine at just the right angle to reveal the keyhole that they previously did not know about, which they can use an ancient ancestral key to unlock and to get in sneakily. And they send the hobbit against his will uh, with a magic ring, which they didn't know he would get, into uh, rob some jewels out from under the nose of the dragon. I was reminded of this famous storyline as I studied our passage this week because in it, Paul explains to the Corinthians that the good news of Jesus Christ crucified is a revealed mystery from God. See, the dwarves were descendants of the original inhabitants. They even had the map. This reminds me of the Israelite people and the Old Testament scriptures. But they didn't know about the secret passageway in. The mystery remained. They had the desire to come home and to enter into their inheritance, but um, the unexpected way in, the mystery, had to be revealed to them. They could never find it on their own. It had to be shown them through the light of the setting sun. In the same way, when Christ came as the fulfillment of all God's promises, it was unexpected. It was a mystery from God that had to be revealed. Today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we will hear that the gospel is the revealed mystery from God to be received by all. It is a revealed mystery from God. So if you have your Bible with you, please uh, pull that out. We'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the first uh, five verses we'll summarize as a part of the previous section. This is where, unfortunately, I think the chapter, me and I, it's not me that I'm super smart, but scholars would agree that this is an unfortunate chapter break. The chapter break should come after verse 5 because verses 1 through 5 kind of finish up what comes right before it. So we'll start in on chapter 6, or on verse 6 once we get into it. The first main point we will examine today in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, 6 and following, is that the gospel is a mystery from God. The second point that we'll, we'll, we'll study is that it has to be revealed, that it comes by revelation. So first, 
The gospel is a mystery from God. Paul just finished explaining before, chapter, before verse 6, over the last 19 verses, that God, in his wisdom, had chosen the foolish message of the cross. I don't know if you uh, had some self-awareness, but if you had no church context, if you weren't a pre-modern pagan who was familiar with sacrifice or a Jew who was familiar with sacrifice, the idea that we worship someone and that we want to take a bath in his blood is really weird. It's really weird. And in fact, people have been saying that about Christians for a long time. You're really weird. Not just about our, our weird music on that, cha- that station. It's foolish. The foolish message of the cross was used to save a foolish people, uh, a foolish group of people. Paul tells them, none of you, not many of you were of high estate. Some of you were pretty ragtag, by the way. So the church in Corinth is a foolish group of people. And then in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, he says he uses a foolish manner of preaching. He's a weak man who doesn't use a lofty speech, but he uses a plain, almost stumbling, fearful delivery method to say Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. In the case of the message, the messenger and the hearers, the foolishness is according to the standards of the world. It is defined by weakness and lowliness. It is defined by self-sacrifice. It is defined by humility. But God is shown to be powerful and wise because through those means, the powerful spirit of God is working and he convicted and he converted the hearts of the Corinthians and they came to believe in Jesus. And so their very existence as a Corinthian church is proof that God has used these means to do powerful things. So that's the summary of all that comes before, that Christ is the revealed wisdom of God. And on the heels of this then, in verse 6, Paul seems to say, don't get confused now. they calling it all foolish, but I'm, and it seems foolish to everybody else, but I'm really talking about true wisdom from God. This is true wisdom. So in verse 6, if you look there at verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, yet, yet, even though I've said everything I've said about foolishness, yet among the mature... I impart, we impart, wisdom. He borrows the term mature from Corinthian culture and and some of the schools of thought in the day. It's probable that it referred to those who were advanced in philosophy, those who were advanced in different mystical religions, and the mature were a select few who got up into the higher ranks. Uh, If you're familiar at all with Scientology, this is something that'll happen. You go in and they believe that you're actually a divine being who's forgotten how to be divine, and they've got to do a an audit of you, and they'll, they'll get rid of all the trauma from your past, and then for a fee, they'll actually help you reclaim your superhuman powers. And there's, there's secret, and it's a scaling up into a place of privilege, and if you pay the money and you advance, there's, there's people who are advanced in the, in the religion. Paul takes this term mature that was an exclusive title for a few elites, and he applies it to every Christian. I love that. He applies it to every Christian. If you've had the grace given to you to be able to believe Jesus Christ, you're mature. You're one of the mature ones. This is especially important later on when he tells them, mature ones, you're acting like children and you're still drinking milk and that's weird. Yet again, you need to be eating meat. It's a serious indictment. So what kind of wisdom do the mature receive? What do we receive? He says, The rest of verse 6, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age 
who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the wisdom that you get as a Christian is none other than the message of Jesus Christ crucified for you and for your sins, which we just sang about. Why is it called secret and hidden? Aren't there a billion Christians in the world today? It's not very secret anymore, is it? Well, that's the point. The gospel was a mystery because of two things, because of its source and its season. Its source and its season. Firstly, its source is God. So no person would ever have actually chosen to start a religion to take over the world with the crucified Son of God executed by the state for its leader. No one would have chosen that as their leader. We're told in Scripture that from the foundation of the world, it was God's idea to send his Son to pay for sin through his death. It was God's idea. It comes from him. But secondly, the gospel is a mystery and a secret because of its season, the season of the world in which it came. God's desire to save his people, that basic plan, that basic action from God is not new. It goes all the way back. God provided for Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, he covered them with, with uh, uh, the, the animal skins. And when Noah needed rescue, he, he uh, uh, showed him how to build an ark. And when he needed to rescue the people of Israel from Egypt, he led them out through uh, the leadership of Moses and parting of the Red Sea. God has been saving for a long time. Long time. What was new, even though the promises and the images, the foreshadows and the types were all there, the explicit nature of the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, was not made known. It was a mystery. You wouldn't have put the puzzle pieces together in this way. And if you didn't have a picture to look at, it wouldn't have made sense to you. God determined the, late, the later season of, of the explication of the promises meant it was previously unknown. God determined before all things that he would send his son to take on human flesh. He, it wasn't plan B. He wasn't making this up on the go. God does not change. His will is immutable. Yet, he chose at the proper time to reveal the plan of salvation. Paul speaks of this mystery in many places. He talks about the mystery being revealed in many places in his writings. Ephesians 1, Romans 16, later on in this very book. But one of my favorite passages is Ephesians chapter 3, because Paul puts a little bit of spice on the beginning of it. I love it. He says, when you read this, talking about this letter, we have this passage we can put up. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I love that. He's, he is... Not shy about this. He is confident in his message. You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body with the Jewish offspring of Abraham, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Like I said, Paul is not shy about the fact that the message speaks for itself, and for him, uh, they're built different, right? Jesus says the same thing in, in different terms to his disciples when he was still on earth. His first proclamation in the gospel of Mark is that the time is fulfilled, repent, and believe the gospel. 
What does it mean that the time is fulfilled except that the, 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 the cosmic inbreaking of the gospel is, is finally coming? What was expected to come is finally here. The entire upper room discourse of, of John chapters 13 through 17 is one massive explanation from Jesus that all the Father has planned, the Son has either communicated or acted out in plain sight of his disciples and has shown them what the Father plans. He has revealed it to them so that they may be one with him, even as the Father and the Son are one. The book of Hebrews also, he says it in, in glorious language right at the beginning. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, there were so many ways that God communicated. It said, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The good news of Jesus is a mystery from God because it's of its source, that it's from God, and its season, when it arrived. So it was a mystery until it was revealed. It is from God alone, and it was revealed at just the right time when Christ appeared on earth for the first time to deal with sin and to destroy the works of Satan. So in verse 7, it says this mystery is for our glory. So not only is this mystery a secret, but it's then for our glory. What would it mean that the secret mystery of God is for our glory? Well, the mystery of God is uh, the transformation and resurrection of the world and of you and of me. It's not just a, a, another thing to believe in. It's the resurrection of all this through Christ and through the most unexpected, irreligious, dehumanizing, lowly, and foolish means you could possibly imagine for, for how to kill someone. In God's wisdom, he decided that he would use the folly of the crucified Son of God to deliver this new manner of life, this new resurrection life, to foolish men and women like you and me. And he's going to do it by foolish preachers like you and me, messengers like you and me. The result being that we would be resurrected and glorified with Jesus Christ in glory for all eternity. That's the mystery of God. In this way, the gospel is the unforeseen answer to all the world's greatest problems. God, how do we know what you, who you are and what you're like? I'm sending my son to do mercy, to heal the sick, to deliver the, the oppressed, to die in your place and show you that I am love. You could never have said God is love unless he showed you. God is love. People like to say that. How do you know that? Because Christ died. God, how are you going to make all the wrong things right? How are you going to fulfill all your promises to eradicate sin, to eradicate death? Well, my son is going to rise from the dead and then come again one day to restore all creation after he judges the living and the dead. God, how are you going to cross the divide, and how are you going to restore relationship between you and us? When my son dies in, in your place, he will pay all your debts, he will wipe away all your guilt, he will wipe away all your shame, and that will be removed from you, and then he will give you the honor of my kingdom. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is not merely a new idea amongst other ideas. It's not just a competing idea in the marketplace of how you ought to live your life or philosophies. We're not just in competition with Confucius and Buddha and Plato. That's not what's going on. It is not also either merely a new morality amongst other opinions about how to live life. 
It is a new mode of existence from another realm completely. It is a new mode of existence that has pierced the veil of merely natural existence. Paul tells us in the second letter to the Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Why would he say that? Why would he say that if you're in Christ, there's new creation? The old is gone, the new has come. When Paul speaks of the revelation of the mystery of God, he is speaking about none other than the turning of the cosmic tides, the inbreaking of the kingdom. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the dawning of a new world upon our own. The mystery of God is of world-changing and reality-altering implications and proportions. You cannot exhaust the scope and the implications of the dawning of the Son of God upon the world. The gospel is the mystery of God. The second main lesson Paul wants to show us from this passage and wants to say to the Corinthians is that the mystery must be revealed. The mystery comes by revelation. It's not merely difficult to understand God's ways. It's impossible. It's not merely difficult to get to heaven. I think it's hard to get to heaven. It's impossible. It's not merely difficult to figure out what the meaning of life is and how you ought to have hope for yourself beyond this life, past the death that is inevitably coming for you and me. It is impossible to attain, but what is impossible for man is possible for God and with God. What we need is revelation. What is revelation? It is an unveiling. It is an appearing. It is an epiphany. What was seen or unintelligible, unknown or opaque originally is made visible and known. It is revealed. What was previously unknown is made known. So look at verse 8. What does Paul say? None of the rulers of this age understood it, he said. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. One proof of the mystery needing to be revealed is that those who actually saw Jesus in the flesh didn't understand it. Then he goes on, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things that we couldn't have imagined, that we couldn't have come up with, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So what the wise and powerful people of the world didn't know, what they couldn't figure out, God has actually chosen to reveal by his Spirit. And to explain what he means by that, Paul uses an example from everyday life. Look at verse 11. It says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? This reminds me, a little break from all the content, this reminds me of when I go to order food for my family. Maybe you'll relate to this. I promise you this is related. I know, I know my wife, okay? We've been married almost 10 years. We've been together almost 15 years. We've known each other since first grade and ate lunch at the same lunch table in high school. We had similar friend groups. We went to all the same places after the football game. I know my wife. I know what she likes to eat. And when I go to a restaurant, I am confident that I know what to order for my wife. I know what she wants. And don't, and don't question it. But when I go to Chipotle to get her food, I screw it up every single time. 
I can never remember. Do you like the corn? Like, do you want sour cream? I thought you liked black beans. Oh, no, you like refried beans, but they don't have refried beans, so no beans. Is it the raw? You don't want, you don't want the pico? It's the raw onions? Okay, I, I'm never going to remember this. I'm never going to remember it. You know what would be better is for me trying to just like ascertain what she wants. And maybe she has a change of mood. It's been chicken for 15 years. Maybe she goes, give me the barbacoa. I was really craving barbacoa today. She's pregnant. She could have that kind of craving. I'll have the barbacoa. Who knows what she's feeling except her? Who knows what's in her mind and what she's thinking about what she wants in that delicious, deliciously wrapped tortilla except her? Maybe she wants some hot salsa. So instead of me trying to know what's in my wife's mind, all I need to do is let her order it or write it down and be really clear. Let her reveal it rather than trying to think I can just ascertain it. That's called epistemological pride. You can look that up. The person knows their own thoughts. In the same way, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Same way. God's been ordering food for this world, and we don't know what his order is until he tells us. There was a moment when Jesus asked his disciples how people were identifying him. Who do people say that I am? Then they, they, they said um, what people were saying. You're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. You're some kind of prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? And this is Peter's confession, a famous moment. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Peter, you're so smart. Figure that out. I can't believe it. You've been pretty foolish this whole time, but that's the smartest thing you've said the whole time I've known you. No, he didn't. You know what he actually said? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, brain matter, has not revealed this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, has revealed this to you. The Father who is in heaven alone reveals the truth about Christ in the gospel. We do, not, we do not need to think better or be more clever about how we conceive of life within this worldly imminent frame of ours. We don't just need more ingenuity and technology. We need revelation. We, we clearly don't have the solution ourselves. If, if we conceive of the world as this little bubble and all the solutions to the problems inside this bubble are to be found within the bubble as well, We're doing a really bad job. No, what has to happen is the infinite has to break into the finite. The eternal has to break into the temporal. The altogether perfect, lovely, good, true, excuse me, beautiful has to break in to the curse. And God does that through Jesus Christ. We need the Almighty One to bring rescue from outside. It cannot come from within. It must be delivered. Thankfully, that has happened for us who follow the teaching of Christ. Paul says it here in verse 12 of that passage. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You don't actually have to pay for it. It's freely given. You don't have to work your way up into a mystery cult. God just lays it out there, and it's free. 
And Paul says, we, the apostles, the teachers of this faith, the followers of Jesus, impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom. This isn't something that someone just went and figured out one day and, oh, you know what would be a really great religion? A crucified God-man. No. It was taught by the Spirit. And they're interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And to those who are spiritual, it's not some private elite who know how to speak in tongues or some private elite who know how to pay their way up to a higher level of access to mythology that was made up in the 1950s. Those who are spiritual are those who have been united to Jesus Christ by the grace of God through faith in God. And that's all of you, if you believe in Jesus Christ. There's a painting that I want to show you I'll leave up and that we'll end with and kind of meditate on together. This painting is entitled Waterfall of the Misty Dawn. Sounds a little bit like a 1960s fantasy novel with like a big dragon on the front. But um, Pat Steer uses a waterfall technique to paint these paintings and this is from 1990. She's since kind of changed her style. I, I got into a I went into a really deep like rabbit hole last night and was like looking at all her stuff. I think it's incredible. Um, Steer pours paint from a saturated brush. You can see the brush strokes kind of across the top. She saturates a brush and she pours paint from that brush um, across the top and creates these long, thin vertical lines of paint that stream down the canvas. Um, so this is oil paint. And in this painting, she did that with the gold. Everything you see on there is drip. Nothing is stroked on in this painting. I think there might be thrown paint at the bottom, excuse me. She was still in her transition. Now she does only poured paint. There's some thrown paint at the bottom, but everything at the top is poured. So the gold, what's behind, it's layers and layers of poured paint. And in this painting, these falling silvery lines create a veil in the foreground. And for me, when you, see, when you look at this painting, that's the first thing that my eye is drawn to. It's the brightest thing. You see this kind of veil, this almost, uh, if you ever go into someone who was born in the, or that lived through the 60s and they've got the beads hanging in their door and you have to get through them to their office, right? It's like the beads hanging down. Um, it's just, it can't be a normal door. It's got to be a bead veil. Get tangled up in your... And so if you look at the silvery veil in the foreground, you immediately... Your, 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 your eyes start to drift over and you see the, the golden dawn in the background. The dawn reminds me of the revelation of God. Zechariah says when he sees Christ, he says, or when he, he hears that um, his son is going to be born and be the, the, the forerunner to Christ, he says, the dawn from on high shall break upon us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that when someone turns to Christ, the veil is removed. That the veil, Moses went up on the mountain and he saw God. When he came down, the people were like, please, we're afraid. There was a fear. And so he wore a veil over his face. And to this day, when they read the scriptures, they're unable to see the glory of Christ. But we, when we turn to Christ, the veil is removed from our faces. And Paul says, we with unveiled face behold his glory. Revelation is like seeing the golden dawn of Christ's face through or even around the silvery veil of this life. I think that the veil can be likened to our experience in life, our, our lives, our experiences, our everyday life, and there's always this veil. There was the veil of the, the big picture prophets and promises that was pulled back and Christ is revealed, but 
throughout our lives, we'll have moments where it's unclear where God is. And we have to beg him to pull back the veil and help us to see the golden revelation of Christ in our midst, to see what he's doing. The dwarves are on the mountain, on the side of the mountain, and the sun is setting and they're just getting there just in time. And the light lights up the keyhole and they can get in. And when God lights up your life, he'll show you the key of David. And he'll show you the entrance into our heavenly mountain home, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem come out that will last forever, our home. And the treasure there for us is not a mountain of gold with a dragon sitting on it, although God has thrown the dragon down and there are streets of gold apparently. Our treasure is God himself. Our treasure is God himself. And the access into the mountain where the treasure of God is, is Jesus Christ, who has to be revealed to you. Though we see dimly now, at the end, we will see him face to face. We will behold the man. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.